now. How's that? How's that? Yeah, right. How's that? Curtis, you better show me how to work this. There we go. Nope. How's this one? All right, we'll work this one. Well, it's great to see you all here. Welcome to uh, the Great Lakes Men's Retreat at Beulah Beach, 2003. It is a great privilege to see you here, and it's uh, we're glad you're here. We think we've got a, a rich agenda for you. There's been much prayer and preparation that has gone into our time, and so uh, we're ready. Thanks, Miles, for getting us ready. And uh, Seth and Mark, appreciate it. How many first-timers we have here uh, tonight? Yep, good. I think we've got guys from all over the country. We've got them from uh, Arizona to Pennsylvania tonight. So uh, we're glad you're all here. I would say that you're in for a great treat. And uh, as we've had these retreats in the past, we have... uh, come away with uh, with that feeling that we've we've really been treated to a good time some of us walk away that we've had more of a treatment than a treat but uh, we we do believe that God has each one of us here for a reason that you're not here by accident and um, that it is a privilege to be here to uh, find out what God would have for us during the weekend We believe that each one of us is uniquely created by God with unique gifts and circumstances and for the unique purpose that he has called us to. He has specific plans designed for each one of you, and I hope you will walk away from our time this weekend knowing God better, that you'll be changed and that you'll apply what you learn, what you've heard, and that you should know what you're going to do with it, that you'll know once you leave what's happened to you and how you're going to go forward with God. Our theme for the retreat is out of Colossians 1.10, and uh, it reads, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. So our hopes for the weekend are that the fellowship of the weekend and the words of our speakers, the interaction with them and with the other men will stimulate your thinking and spur you on to know God more intimately, to understand what he would have for you in your life and how to please him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me uh, open us with a word of prayer and then... uh, We'll start in on some uh, details of our retreat. Lord, we recognize your goodness and your direction in our lives. We're grateful that you have us here. Lord, we recognize that you have plans for this weekend that are yours, and we want to align ourselves with those plans. So we give you this weekend knowing that it's yours, and we ask that you'd move in our hearts and our minds, 
Pray that you'd meet each one of our needs. Each one of us has unique needs, and we trust that you're in the process of doing that. Pray for our families as we're away. That you'd protect them. I pray that you'd give us open minds, clear our minds of all the issues of home and work, open up our, uh, our willingness, open up our hearts so that we can hear what's being said. And we ask for your hand on us as we uh, seek to know you. In Jesus, amen. Before we get into it, I'd just like uh, to pick up some administrative details here, uh, and then we'll start in on our, our time. You all got a packet, and if you haven't registered upstairs, you should have a packet uh, upstairs on the desk with your name on it. And would just like to go through some of the materials that are in that packet. Uh, one is that you should have an agenda uh, that's got our time on it pretty well laid out. Um, just ask that you would uh, adhere to our times. We try to keep on a pretty good schedule here so that we can maximize all of our times. We would ask that you'd respect the times and uh, be at meals, be down here on time so that we can uh, get started. Uh, a little bit on our agenda. Uh, tomorrow we have uh, a R&R break uh, tomorrow afternoon. And also in your schedule you should have a list of uh, activities that you can participate in. There's a sign-up sheet in the back room for... Uh, where's Bob? Bob, we got a sign-up sheet here for... Yep. For, all the for all activities back here on this table? Yes. I'm... Invest in our lives in the Word of God. And so we're privileged to have them. But I would also tell you that they are just on the same walk as you and I. And they're growing. And um, so we don't boast about them. And, um, but we do know that they are mentors for us. And so we want to watch their walk and pay attention to their, their words because they have experienced the same struggles and tensions that you and I are going through and have gone through. So I would encourage you to emulate them and to listen closely to what they have to say. They enjoy the interaction, as I said, and we try to get as much interaction uh, between the speakers and you all. We've got a what we call our speaker meal program where you will find in your packet where you are assigned to a speaker table at the next four meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner tomorrow, and breakfast on Saturday. And you'll find that in your packet uh, where your name is, what table you're sitting at with what speaker. It's in the downstairs of the building across the street. Any other administrative things that I'm missing, Dale, Dave? Any other issues? Okay. Well, why don't we get to know each other a little bit? I think what we'd like to do is just go around the room and have you stand up right where you're at. And if you just state your name and, uh, and we come before you tonight and give you all of our needs. Lord, you know each one of us individually and where we're living. We ask that you'd meet us.
And we ask that you'd take this time and use it as you see fit in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus. Amen. We've got a twofold purpose. Yeah, that buzz, Curtis, can we take that out of there? That's better. We've got a twofold purpose in our time this weekend. The first thing that we want to do is challenge and stimulate your thinking. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. That's in the Old Testament. It's uh, after Psalm and Proverbs and right after the book of Isaiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. And I'd like for someone to stand up right where you're at and read Jeremiah verses 23, 9, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. If you do that, please. Thank you, Fred. Let not a wise man boast, let not the mighty man boast, and let not the rich man boast. But let him who boasts boast in this, in this that he understands and knows me. See, we don't boast in the knowledge, our knowledge, or who we are, or what we do, But our purpose is to know and understand God. Our core purpose in life is not to go to work. It's not to meet our clients' needs. It's not to gain power or letters after our name or more degrees or strive for money. Our core purpose is understanding Jesus Christ. It's not about what we've accomplished, but about who we know. And to know him as he reveals himself to us. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks, so he is. See, the right doing, doing right, requires right thinking. Correct leadership knowing our times and correct reactions in our times and what you should do today requires correct thinking. Therefore, our purpose here is to challenge your thinking and to stimulate you in how you view God and yourself. But I would also tell you that we are not here to become smarter Christians. It's not our goal. We are here to be changed. 
So our challenge is really our attitude. Our attitude toward what God has for us, what He says. We all come from different backgrounds, from different experiences. We're all kinds of different ages here. We all have our different points of view. But I would suggest that what we hear will have a unique impact on each one of us because of our backgrounds. Let me suggest that what you hear will probably stimulate your thinking in the sense that you may hear things this weekend that you've never heard before. They may be challenging to your, to your truth system, how you've been raised, what your perspectives are on God's Word and about God Himself. And I'd, I'd just encourage you that your response to what you're here today is about your attitude. It's a choice. It's a matter of the will. In fact, uh, the Scripture has some instruction for us on that kind of attitude. And I'd like for you to turn to the book of Acts over in the New Testament, chapter 17. I'd like for someone to stand and read Acts 17, verses 10 and 11, please. Please. Thanks. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than in Thessalonica, for they received for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Thank you, Matt. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I would suggest to you that you're going to hear some things that are going to do that for you. They're going to challenge you this weekend. None of us like change. It is tough. It can be hard. But I would believe that that's why you're here that God wants you to change. To hear truth is difficult, but needed. We all desperately need it. So I would encourage you to be like the Bereans. Be open to the Word. And if what you hear bangs up against your truth system, then be like the Bereans. And take it to the Word and see if what you hear is true. And if it's not true, then throw it out. I just encourage you to dismiss it. But if what you hear this weekend bangs up against your true system and you take it to the Word and you find that it is true, then I would say that you've got a responsibility to apply it to your life. Our biggest challenge for the weekend is our attitude to what we hear. And I have not been to one of these retreats or heard these guys where I have not been challenged in my truth system. I would encourage you to be open. 
Our second purpose in coming together this weekend is to get a view of what God calls us to do, particularly considering the changing times that we're in. We hope that you will gain an understanding of what He has for you in your life through the modeling of the walk that our speakers and other men here exhibit, that you get a picture of what the ministry is and what the walk of God looks like as God describes it. See, we are all called to be distinctive. We are all called to please Him in our uniqueness. We're called as leaders, not as timid, but strong and victorious in our lives. We are Christ's ambassadors and His representatives. Turn to me with me to Revelation 6. It's the last book of the Bible. I'm sorry, chapter 1, Revelation, verse 6. He says that, uh, And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. See, we are all priests. Each one of us, God calls a priest. Each one of us is a saint, and we are called to be distinctive right where we're at as a priest. Turn with me to the left to Ephesians chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 4. And verse 11 through 13, if you've got that, please uh, stand and read. some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, mature attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Thank you. My version says that uh, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, in verse 12 that that's us that's you and me that we are the saints we're the priests to do the ministry see we have access to God any time any place and under any circumstances it's no longer the Old Testament picture of only the priest gaining access to God in the Holy of Holies but we are in the presence of God wherever we're at as priests. For we represent men before God, and we represent Christ before men. We live in an era designed by God for the individual man of God. Hebrews 4 says that we boldly enter into his throne room whenever, wherever, under any circumstances. 
We as priests are not inferior, but we're first class. We are ministers. You're not inferior to your pastor or to elders in your church. You're not unqualified, but you are equipped, approved, and qualified. And you're placed there by God. You're called to leadership wherever He has you. We're not second-rate. We're first-rate. No one has the unique position that you have except for you. He has uniquely placed you right where you're at as a priest and a minister with His unique purpose for you in mind. God's strategy is the individual believer, the priest, the man of God, to be scattered throughout the world. In neighborhoods, in workplaces, as aliens and exiles, not at home, our home is not here, moving throughout the lives of men that God has placed in your way. That's what it means to be the priest. You're God's man right where you're at, 24-7. You are Jesus Christ's representative right where you're at, in your neighborhood, your workplace. See, the role in the home, the work, the school, the neighborhood is by God's design. It is your right, but it's also your responsibility. We are his ambassadors right where we're at. The ministry is not Sunday morning, not only Sunday morning, but it's Monday through Saturday. The roles that God has laid out for us, whether it be as employer or employee, as husband, as a father, as a son, those roles he has each one of us playing in some or all of those in unique circumstances. God has planted you right in those circumstances for his special purposes. See, your response at home, your response in the workplace, draws attention. You are unique, and people are watching you because you are different. How you act in those circumstances gives you the platform for ministry. Men, that's where the action's at. You and all of us know that your work is not going to fulfill you. That is not why God put you here. He put you here as a minister of his gospel. It's about people and about relationships. So we hope that you address the question, what does being a priest look like in your life? That's why we're here. We're here to stimulate your thinking on what God would have for us. That's what our retreat is really about. We're a group of men that's interested in what God has to say about what he wants for us in our lives. So we're here to stimulate 
correct biblical thinking and to see what that looks like for us. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are here to have our truth system challenged. We ask that you'd stretch us. We ask that you would open us to what you'd have us know. Pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Show us how to observe and learn what the ministry looks like in our lives. Challenge us as priests. God, we want to be open and willing. So we look for your presence. We ask for your presence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'd just uh, like to take a, just a five-minute stand-up break before we bring up uh, Winston here. So um, why don't we just stand up right where you're at. And, and Winston has been helping us with our retreats over the last number of years at Beulah Beach, and he's been a, um, a speaker that we have... Uh, enjoyed and used as uh, part of our purpose. He has come to us from Phoenix. Winston is married to his wife, Judy. He's a graduate of Colorado State University. He has three children and three grandchildren. He's in the real estate business and uh, has been in the retail business in the past. So Winston is uh, going to speak to us on uh, the uh, life of Joseph and application out of the book of Genesis. So welcome, Winston, please. Can you hear me in the back? or How's our sound? Let's work with our sound. Now, Curtis... Hello. Now, we run him off. <laughs> Put those guys in a panic, won't I? <laughs> you can see it. Panic and Dave's face. Yeah, you can let him watch him. Okay. We on yet? No? Nope. Hello? All right. Can you hear in the back? All right. Uh, Steve volunteered, uh, didn't you, Steve, to be my reader tonight? I've got several scriptures, so uh, in light of the way the mics are working, if we want to just give him one permanently, and I think that'll work for us. And uh, Did you bring your Bible, Steve? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, couldn't resist, my friend. <laughs> well, it's good to be here, and always good to be with you men, and uh, to see uh, old friends, and to meet some new friends, and uh, it's uh, it's a privilege, and um, 
and a bit of a shock. I, uh, it was 92 in Phoenix when I left. <laughs> but uh, it's good to be here. So uh, this opening night is always a, a tough time to, uh, to give a talk because you guys are tired and uh, the adrenaline has been flowing today and you're trying to get geared down. And uh, then after that meal, you, you really get geared down. And uh, so I thought, I, I just pulled this up, I just got it the other day, a guy sent it to me, I thought it might be helpful, uh, and uh, you might be able to get some application out of this for tonight uh, with the message and the time it is and, and so on, and it's uh, the ten best things to say if you're caught sleeping at work. <laughs> so uh, you, you guys are innovative, so you can, you can adjust them to your own lives, but uh, number ten is... Uh, they told me at the blood bank that this might happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number nine. This is just a 15-minute power, power nap like they raved about at that time management course you sent me to. <laughs> Eight. Whew. Guess I left the top of the white out off. You, pro- you probably just got here in time. <laughs> Number seven, I wasn't sleeping. I was meditating on the mission statement and envisioning a new paradigm. (laughs) Six, I was testing my keyboard for drool resistance. (laughs) Five, I was doing a highly specific yoga exercise to relieve work-related stress. Are you discriminatory toward people who practice yoga? Four, why did you interrupt me? I had almost figured out the solution to our biggest problem. (laughs) Three, the coffee machine is broken. Two, someone must put decaf in the wrong pot. And number one, this will work. Just say if you're caught sleeping. Raise your head from your desk and say, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, just uh, if you doze off, why, just grab a hold of one of those. You're, you're safe. So let me pray and let's, let's get started. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for a time to be able to come together as brothers in Christ, to encourage one another, and to uh, have you teach us. And we acknowledge that unless the Lord builds a house, they who labor, labor in vain. And Father, we acknowledge that unless you come by the power of your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word and be the one that teaches us, nothing's going to happen tonight. So we pray that you join us and meet each one of us at our point of need. And we thank you in advance. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me just say that uh, I uh, invite dialogue, so feel free to 
stop at any time and let's, let's interact on something. Uh, you know, communications are very easy to be like this, and let's see if we can get them matched up. And sometimes that takes dialogue to get there. And I know I speak for Jerry and, and uh, Gail, who will be on tomorrow, the same way. So uh, uh, I, uh, I only have about five minutes of material, so if you guys don't do that, we're going we're gonna to be over pretty quick. So uh, uh, having said that, well, I feel free to do that. Um, I've been, uh, I've been chewing in the book on the life of Joseph for the last, uh, oh, eight, eight months, I suppose, ten months, a year. And uh, so I just thought I might spend some time with you tonight and tomorrow and some observations that I've uh, come away with and, and some things that uh, I've been able to apply and hope to apply in my own life. You know, the Apostle Paul tells the Romans, he says, for the things that were written in earlier times, he's talking about the Old Testament, for the things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction. And so there's a lot of instruction out of the, uh, the life of uh, Joseph. And the writer of Hebrews, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, says, God says through the writer of Hebrews, he says, uh, My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So God says, I have designed life, and I expect my people to trust me, to live by faith. And the writer of Hebrews says that uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You want to please God? Then you've got to trust him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So tonight, I want to talk about tested faith. Joseph's a great example of tested faith. And uh, Joseph's life is primarily uh, given to us in the last 13 chapters of Genesis. The chronology of Genesis is over about 2,300 years. There's about 1,940 Eight years from Adam to Abraham, 361 years, then finishes out the book of Genesis. The story of Joseph happens over a period of about 93 years from Joseph to his death. And his death happens in the last chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50. Some have called Joseph an Old Testament type of Christ. It's interesting to me that the Bible never talks about any sin that Joseph struggled with. Isn't that interesting? Joseph's life is a narrative of God's unfolding and fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant by forming the nation of Israel. That was part of the covenant. And Joseph is part of that. And so I wanted to just give you a kind of a quick uh, overview of that uh, the, we're not here to talk about the Abrahamic covenant, but I think it, it will make us appreciate, I think with faith, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit, that, the, that faith is what I'm going to call bifocal. If you, faith, you have to have a big picture in order to live out the faith in the immediate or the small picture. And so for, let me just give you a little, let's just go through a little history here right quick, um, and let me just get over here. Where Can you see that in the back at all? Can you? Okay, all right. 
we start with Adam in Genesis 1. We go to, to Noah up in Genesis 9, Shem, his son, and Noah's son. That, and then with ten generations later, we have Terah, who was Abraham. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Which was Abraham's father. And uh, Abraham's father was an idol worshiper. And so they called him Abram at the time, which meant exalted father. Now, Abram or Abraham would be the great-grandfather of Joseph. Okay? So we're trying to get Joseph in context. Interesting for us, Abraham lived at the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is about 220 miles southeast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Which is about 220 miles southeast of Baghdad. You ever heard of that place? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so God comes to Abram. There, thanks. God comes to Abram at, at, um, at the Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, all right, I want you to move, and I want you to go into a land that I'm going to give you. And so he had two choices. He could have either gone across the Arabian uh, 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 desert and on up into... Uh, into Canaan, or he could have gone along the Euphrates River up northwest, and that's where he went, and he went up uh, to where the Bible calls it um, uh, Haran, in, and that actually is in what we know as Syria today. And then his daddy dies there, Terah, and then Abraham, um, Abraham then moves on down into Canaan, or what we would call Israel, part of the promised land there. And God appears to Abram there, and uh, he, gives him, he gives him what we call the, the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with him. And one of the things he said there in the covenant was, I will give your descendants this land. Now let me just follow up here with a second. I'm just, I'm just going over this quickly. I just want to give you an overview. So Abraham, so then... Uh, God comes to Abraham in Canaan and he changes his name in Genesis uh, 17 to Abraham, which is the father of a great number. And then you know the story, or most of you probably do, his son Isaac and then his, his son Jacob. And he, turns, he changes Jacob's name into Israel. That's interesting, wasn't it? And then Jacob... Um, Jake, God comes, and each one of these guys, Isaac, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob, he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him. And then Jacob becomes Israel, and he reaffirms it again with him. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And Joseph is the uh, 11th son of the 12 sons of Jacob. And... Uh, so then uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob tells Joseph then about the Abrahamic covenant. And part of that covenant was that God has promised us that we'll have this land forever. And then on Joseph's dying bed, he again reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. It's the last thing he says. And he says, God will give, has promised to give us this land forever. And so that's a little of his background. So he is the great-grandson of Abraham, the, Abraham, the man of faith.
Let me give you just one more, and I'll stay on this side because of the speaker. Let me just give you one more overview. I apologize. That didn't, can you see that in the back? Okay. So we have here again Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons. Now, interesting because each one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is part of this Abrahamic covenant. Okay. And so one of his sons, Jacob, I mean Judah, and Judah was the fourth born. He was the fourth born. And if you follow his lineage is King David, then King Jesus Christ, and then pop your name in there, right there. Because you're part of that lineage. Notice what Galatians, Galatians 3.29 says. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What promise? The Abrahamic covenant, wasn't it? Okay. And so Joseph, part of his base of faith was the Abrahamic covenant of what God had promised but had not fulfilled yet. And let me just suggest to you that part of our faith base needs to be what God has promised us that he hasn't fulfilled yet. And one of the things he says is that Jesus is coming again. Does that influence your faith? Does that influence the way you're living today? And then interesting to me is if you go over to the book of Revelation, it says, I now saw a new heaven and a new earth. And Peter tells us that God is going to burn this earth, but he's going to form a new heaven and a new earth. And it isn't it interesting that back in the Abrahamic covenant that God says, I will give to, he's talking to Abraham, I will give you and your descendants the land for how long? Forever. Interesting thing to think about is what's the, what is the correlation between God's promise to Abraham and the land forever and the new earth? That'll be one you can ponder on as Bereans. So. Okay? So let's talk about um, tested faith in Joseph. And that gives you a little background of who Joseph is and, and so on. Now, Steve, would you go to Psalm, all of us can go to Psalm 105, if you would, please. Let's, uh, we'll wait till everyone gets there. I want you to read uh, verses 4 through 24. It's interesting. The psalmist here kind of gives a quick overview of the life of Joseph. So follow along with Steve as he reads Psalm 105, starting with verse 4 through 24. Hello? Can, can you guys hear him or not? No. Can't hear him. Remember the wonders that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. 
the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob and as a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do not do my prophets no harm. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all the supplies of the food. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him, the ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler of all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob lived as an alien in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes. Okay. Thank you, Steve. I want to just pick up and point out one thing in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, until the time that his word came to pass. I think he's talking about there not only the Abrahamic covenant, but he's talking about the dreams that Abraham or uh, Joseph had and, and when he was in uh, Egypt and they hadn't come true yet if he was going to rule over his family. But the, the, the word I want to pick up on here is the word of the Lord tested him. Uh, Steve's translation says proved him. And I did a little work on that, on that word, and it's an interesting word because the word means to smell or to, uh, to try, to test. Um, and if I can find my notes, I'll do a better job with it. Um, okay, here it is. It means to smell, to refine, to test, to prove. Uh, it's translated also the same word as a founder, like a founder of a, with gold or silver. A goldsmith, melt, uh, to uh, purge away. It's translated silversmith or crucible. And I thought it was interesting that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, translates it to make hot, to make hot. And so I was, uh, one of the Proverbs says, a refining pot, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart, the refining pot. And I would suggest to you, as David went through a refining pot, so God takes us. I was talking to a gemologist about silver and the refining of silver. And he said that silver, uh, in order to melt silver, you've got to get it up over 900 degrees centigrade. And to boil silver, you've got to get it up over 2200 degrees centigrade. And he said silver is generally heavier than most of the impurities. So what happens is as the silversmith heats that up, as they smelt that, it gets, it gets so hot that, and he says some of the impurities are the at the molecular, molecular, I'll get it in a minute, molecular level are so intertwined that it takes that kind of heat to break them up. And he says when it breaks up, then the impurities raised to the top. And one of the things he said that when you finally get silver in a pure state, he says you can look in it and see your reflection. 
And I would suggest to you, gentlemen, that's what God does to us, is he tests us just as he tests, has tested Joseph. And his goal is, as he purifies our faith, then as he looks into our lives, as he looks into our lives, he sees an image of himself. And that's what the goal of God is in tested faith. So now let's look, let's see, let's see how Joseph, uh, some of the, uh, how God dealt with Joseph in uh, getting him to develop his tested faith. So Steve, let's start in Genesis 37. You guys can follow along as Steve reads. And I just, most of you probably know the story. If you're like me, you maybe haven't read it for a while, so it'll be a good quick review. We're just going to do a quick overview, and uh, I'll kind of maybe put a commentary or two in just to to move us along. But Genesis 37, verses 1 through 5, Steve. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bela and the sons of Zelpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Okay. Let me just give you a little map. Jacob and Joseph and his sons were living here at Hebron. I'm going to move it up here where the guy's in the back. Hebron. Here is Egypt over here. Here's Hebron. Okay. And so that, this is where they're living. And uh, so this is, uh, this is where this takes account. Je- De- uh, Joseph actually has two dreams. The dreams say that he's going to rule over his brother. He's going to rule over his whole family. And his older brothers didn't take kindly to that. And he's a kid of uh, 17 years old at the time. And uh, so, go ahead, Steve. Uh, Verse 28, 37 and 28. Just 28? Yes. So when the midnight merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Israelites who took him to Egypt. Okay, so here's what happens. The boys are up, his brothers are up here at Dothan, and they're, they've got the herds. So Joseph is here with his dad in Hebron, and he says, all right, go up and see how your brothers are doing and the sheep. So he goes up here, and by now the brothers are ticked off, and so they end up, they're first going to kill him, and then they decide not to. So some from over in here, which would be over in Syria, uh, Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, they're up. So Joseph goes up to here, and so then what they do, instead of killing him, they've got some some Ishmaelites, some Midianites coming across here, and they're going down to Egypt to trade. So they say, well, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him. So they sell him. He's 17 years old. And so these uh, Ishmaelites who are... uh, uh, Arabs, so they take him down, they take him down into Egypt and sell him as a slave. Now, remember, let's keep the big picture as well as the small picture. From David's or from uh, Joseph's standpoint, man, that had to look like it was pretty traumatic, wasn't it? 
Well, what the big picture is, God is orchestrating this, isn't he? We, have, we look in retrospect, and all God's doing is he's getting ready to move all of Jacob, down, Jacob and his sons down to Egypt. Eventually, they're going to multiply so much, and then, the, then Moses is going to come get them, and eventually he's going to form them into a nation, isn't he, at Mount Sinai, some four or 500 years later. So that's part of where Joseph sat. So now let's go to uh, Genesis 39. One to four. Steve, read that for us. Now, now jo- he's in Egypt now. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered and lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted his care, everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had. Okay. Where, where at? I just want through verse 4. Okay, I'm past it. Yeah, okay. Okay, so they sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar is kind of the, the head of the CIA for Pharaoh. Okay, but notice what it says there. That it, who brought him? Who brought him down there? God brought him down there, didn't he? But notice where God was during this testing for Joseph. He says, "And the Lord was with Joseph during the testing." Now look at verse thirty-nine, seven through nine. God's not through building his tested faith. Seven through nine. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withhold nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now Joseph gets tested. Here he's getting an opportunity to, to shack up with Potiphar's wife. And he says, thanks, but no thanks. I can't afford it, you know. Verse, now let's go to Genesis thirty-nine twenty to 20. Did you hear a question? The question was, how did he know that it was a sin against God? And why would you ask me that, Gail, and try to embarrass me in front of all these guys? He has no Bible. He has no law. He has no recognition of God. Gail, I thought about that some, and uh, it seems to me like, and I, I want to, that's one of the things I'm going to talk about in a little bit, is is one of the one of the qualities of tested faith is what the object of your faith is and it's the object the object of your faith is the character of God it seems to me like somehow in his relationship with God he grasped the holiness of God and he said I cannot violate the holiness of God and gentlemen, there will be times when God takes you into situations where 
all, and we're going to talk about this in more detail in just a little bit, where that's all you're going to have is the character of God, who God is. Okay? Yes? One of the things that comes to mind in regards to that uh, issue is uh, when uh, uh, the Gentiles, uh, when Paul was going to the Gentiles, he made a reference to them not having the law, but still knowing what is right from wrong. So without the law, there is an inherent uh, uh, crea- created within each of us knowing what is right from wrong by God himself. Okay. okay. Steve, now let's read verse 20 to 23. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay. Notice again, where was God during this time when Joseph gets tossed in jail? Yeah, it says the Lord was with him. Let us not forget that. Secondly, he gets thrown in jail for doing what's right. Potiphar's wife is mad and she's embarrassed because she makes advances to him and and he won't go along with it. And so he gets thrown in jail based upon her lie. Now let's go to Genesis 40, verse 8 only, Steve. We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Okay. Now... The context here is the cupbearer, who was is a real confidant of Pharaoh, and his baker, and they find out, they fall out of favor with Pharaoh, and so he tosses them into jail. Now they just happen to get thrown into the same cell and area where Joseph sat. Just happened to, you know? Yeah, what a coincidence! And so they have these two dreams. Each of them have a dream. Now read verses 14 and 15. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Okay, so, so Joseph, Joseph interprets their dreams. And he tells the cupbearer that, hey, in three days you're going to get restored. He tells the baker, in three days you're going to lose your head. And so then he says to the, to the cupbearer, he says, by the way, when you get back with Pharaoh, put Put a good word in for me, because I'm here, and, you know, I'm here unjustly. I mean, I got thrown in here, and I didn't deserve to be here. Now look at verse 23, Steve. The chief cupbearer, Howard, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally forgot what he did for him, didn't he? Okay. Now skip on down, uh, Steve, to verse 40, chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. Okay, that's just verse 1. Okay, so now two years later, so Joseph's been in jail another two years. Okay, we got to grasp this time frame. I mean, this just didn't, you know, this wasn't a, a, a 22-day deal, you know. It was, uh, it was longer. 
Now look at verse 25, Steve. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Okay, now verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in the charge of the whole land of Egypt. Okay, so the dream that Pharaoh had, David, or uh, jo- I keep saying David, Joseph said to him, all right, here's what's going to happen. Seven years we're going to have bumper crops, and in seven years we're going to have famine. And so Joseph says to him, you better choose someone to administer this prosperity and save some up so that you can get through those seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh says to him, uh, you're the man. Okay, now verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Okay, so in one day he goes from jail to being prime minister. But gentlemen, how old is he? 30 years old? How old was he when the brothers sold him? How many years has it been? Thirteen years. Tested faith doesn't come overnight, does it? Now, Steve, read uh, Genesis 41, 50, verse 50 first. Before the years of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of Owen. Okay. Go ahead and read the next verse. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God, because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It was because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Notice what he says. After all of his testing and so on, now he, God gives him two sons. And notice what he names both sons and the first son, Manasseh, means God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Who did? God did. Then he names Ephraim. He says, God has made me fruitful in the land of affliction. Who did? Okay. So Joseph's got it in very clear focus. It was God who brought him down. It was God who tested him. And it was God who made him prime minister. What are some lessons for us on this part of Joseph's life? Well, let me suggest to you that God is the source of our testing for his purpose and our good. God is the source of our testing, our trials, call them what you want. For his purpose, in Joseph's, we can look back and we know part of God's purpose is that he is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, isn't he? He's eventually going to form the nation of Israel through the tribe of Jacob. Secondly, God is with us as we go through our testing. God is the one that tests us and purifies our faith, our hope but he's always there. Third observation is testing can take many forms. 
from the family, in Joseph's case, his brothers, sold him into slavery, uh, people we don't know, foreign people, the Ishmaelites, he was sold to, uh, to them. People in authority God may use to test our faith. For him, it was Potiphar, Pharaoh. Women may be used by God to test us. Potiphar's wife. Jail. He may use jail. Loss of family. Joseph lost his family, didn't he? Now, he didn't have any clue he was ever going to see his family again, man. We know it because we, we know, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. But he didn't know it at that time, did he? And it's no different with us. And God has continually got us in the crucible. And so I think the first thing we've to keep it in focus is that God is the source of the testing, of the testing of our faith for his purpose and our good. Let me stop there and if there's any thoughts or on that. Do you see all your tested from God? All testing is from God for his purpose and for our good. If you go through life and you don't think you're being tested like other people are being tested, do you think that you're not as close to God as the people that are being tested? Well, the writer Hebrews tells us that all of us, all of us will be disciplined by God. And now, how that discipline works, how that testing works, that God God does that. But uh, we, uh, the writer of Hebrews, and Gail's going to talk about that in one of his talks. He, he says, I'll guarantee you, God's going to discipline us. He's going to take us through the fires. So they just look. Well, I'm, I, I, I agree. I, I've never asked to be tested either, you know. I mean, but, so God, uh, but God does, yes. Yeah. Well, there's the man himself. Hi, Winston. Hello, everybody. You guys I got the finally, mic. Sorry about that. You guys finally got a, we, we got a, a football coach, didn't you, Vince? What's that? Cowboys? Well, what? Is there another team, Vince? There is not. <laughs> no. Go ahead. Nice to see you. Um, I would imagine you'd have to make a distinction between the uh, life's issues that occur as a result of our own sin and the testing of God. And, and if there is a distinction, what is that distinction? Well, there... We certainly do have to live with the consequences of our actions. But we have to remember that those consequences may be in this life, but not necessarily. But they will be consequences we have to live with. They may be in eternity. And the reason I say that is you, the, the psalmist tells us not to fret over the evil man that prospers. And we scratch our head, and how does that work? I mean, he totally defies God. But let me, 
But having said that, having said that, whatever those consequences are, even if they are of our own doing, okay, who determines what those consequences looks like? God does. And so the testing, whether it's as a result of the consequences of our own life or whether it's out of the sovereign hand of God and has nothing to do with what we've done. A good example is our friend Job. Okay, Either way, God determines what that looks like, and it's always for his purpose and our good. Okay. All right. What is the basic difference between uh, testing and temptation? I mean, we look at Joseph and uh, his uh, situation with Potiphar's wife, for example. Was that an example of uh, God's testing or a temptation that was being put on Joseph? Okay. If you go to the New Testament, the word test, the word trial, the word temptation, if you, many, many times when it's translated those three, trial, test and temptation in the New Testament, it's the same Greek word. So God tempts us, God tests us, and God uh, will put us through trials. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. That's the same word. Over in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13, consider, um, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Same word. But doesn't it say that no man should say that he is tempted of God? Yeah, that's in, G- in James, James 1. Yeah, yeah. Is that the same word? Yeah, yeah. And let me, let's, let's just look at that a minute. That's uh, James chapter 1. It's a good verse. One thirteen, if I remember right. James is right after Hebrews. If you get to Hebrews, you're almost there. Start putting the brakes on. Okay. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I spent a lot of time thinking on that verse. Now, notice what he says. God cannot be tempted by evil. Why is it God cannot be tempted by evil? Because God is holy. And God, we can't relate to that because we're not holy, okay? And so God is holy, and so James is saying God cannot be tempted by evil. And so his logic is, God is holy, therefore he cannot be tempted by evil. Therefore, logically, God cannot tempt us for evil. For evil. 
If he can't be tempted for evil, then he does not tempt us for evil. But, see, the only difference between trial and temptation or test and temptation is motive. And so God will tempt us or test us or put us through a trial. And those three words are used, the same word in the Greek in many places. He, his motive is always for his purpose and our good. Okay? And so what he's saying here is then, so when, he says when you fall into temptation, when we respond improperly, to a trial or temptation, then don't blame it on God, but blame it on yourself because you're the guy that made made the decision. It's out of your own lust. Steve? The sin comes out of our response to the temptation. Go ahead. The sin comes out of our response to the temptation and the testing and the trial. Temptation is not sin. Sin is when we, when we uh, resist God instead of trusting God in the temptation. For example, Joseph. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. That was not sin. It was temptation. Now, who brought Potiphar's wife into Joseph's life? God did. Certainly he did. But he meant it for good. Okay? Let's go on. Tested faith tested faith is bifocal. Read Genesis 45, 4 to 9. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. Was that a temptation for Joseph? I mean, 20-some years later, these guys sold him into slavery. My response is said, you know, guys, it's what goes around comes around, fellas. It's payday. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? He says, no, 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 no. It's God who sent me down here. Don't be afraid. This is all God's doing. Gentlemen, I would suggest to you that tested faith, Tested faith has to be bifocal. We've got to see the big picture. Joseph saw the big picture, didn't he? And therefore, he could live 
with the what appeared to be the inconsistencies in the little picture. See, it's it's like <clears throat> I have. Well, I keep hitting that. I have at home um, my remote on one of my TVs, and on the TV on the TV uh, is a PIP. It's picture in picture. I punch it, and guess what? There's a little picture comes. There's the big picture, and then there's a little picture. Then I got a swap button, so I can exchange these pictures if I want. Okay. And then I got an audio, so I can switch the audio down to the little picture or up to the big picture. And then I even got a button called position. I can move that little picture around. Okay. Now, I would suggest to you, gentlemen, that that's what God wants us to do. If we're going to have to test get tested faith and have the faith like Joseph's got, we got to see the big picture. And we got to understand there is a big picture. And as I live through this smaller picture, gosh, I don't I don't understand it all. It seems inconsistent. Think of Joseph. Now here he is 22 years later. Now, he knows the Abrahamic covenant that God says, I'm going to give you your, your descendants. I'm going to give you the promised land, Canaan. And here Joseph is where he moves him out of Canaan into Egypt. That absolutely is inconsistent with what God had told him he'd do. It's not inconsistent for us because we know the rest of the story. But for him, it was absolutely inconsistent, wasn't it? And so we have to have bifocal, bifocal faith. And let me just say to you, one of the ways, one of the just applications is, just read through that Old Testament once a year. You'll get, you'll get a, a bigger picture of what God's doing and who God is that you'll never get just reading through the New Testament because it just has the benefit of a longer period of time. Turn with me. All of you turn over to Hebrew. Uh, no. <laughs> We're going to have a question and answer tomorrow night, Gail. And go ahead, my friend. Don't you get that? Get, let them hear what you're saying, Gail. Gail, I, uh, I'm not sure that there's any promise of that. Because if all the dots get, get connected, then we don't have to live by faith. And God says, my righteous one shall live by faith. But if I have a sense of what God is doing overall, whatever sense that is, 
then it does help me keep it in perspective. And, um, for example, uh, the promises of God. For Romans 8.28, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. There are times when we've got to grab a hold of that and say, Man, I know that. But boy, I'm telling you, everything around me is telling me just the opposite. Yeah. So I would say no. I don't think, I don't think we've got any, that the dots will ever be totally connected. Because God says, my righteous one will live by faith. And if we could connect all the dots, then we, it wouldn't be by faith. It would be by knowledge. I don't think God's ever going to let us get there. So. Look at Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Now we who have believed enter the, that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. Okay. Now, notice what he says. In, in, at the end of that, he says, His work, God's work has been finished from the foundation of the world. Gentlemen, one of the things we have to grasp is that God, creation is already done. God has finished it. God is not in a time frame. We are. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us here that God's work was finished from the foundations of the world. He rest, rested on the seventh day. So in my mind, I, I visualize that as a scroll, that creation is a scroll. And now God is unrolling the scroll of creation. And he's at the 21st century now. And Steve, you're part, you're in this scroll. Yeah. Okay. And David, you're in this scroll. Jim, you're in this scroll. Israel is in this scroll. The Abrahamic covenant is in this scroll. Because we know that God has not fulfilled all that he said he was going to do in that covenant. And so when we get a sense that we are part of something bigger than we, than we are, and yet we are an integral, in a, uh, important, significant part because God declared us significant. And so it's exciting to say, I wonder what God's doing. I wonder what God's doing right now. And that's part of the bifocal, what I'm calling the bifocal faith here. Steve, let's go to Genesis. I'm sorry. Got a question? Sure. In light of the question that Gail asked, Winston, with the book of First Corinthians, I believe it is, I think it's chapter 13, somewhere around 13, where it talks about we know in part and we prophesy in part. But that, does that apply to what you're talking about now, not understanding the full picture or connecting the dots and where faith comes in? 
Yeah, I think I, I think the first Corinthians passage is we see in part, but then we will see uh, clearly. But um, I don't. I think we'll see Jesus. I think we'll we'll have an understanding we don't have now. But I see nothing in the scriptures that tells me that that promises me that I won't have to walk by faith. That well, that's what I was saying. Is yeah. that we we don't have the full picture now, and that's what you were saying that faith comes in. Okay. Let's read Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11. 37? Genesis 37, 9 through 11. Then he had another dream, and he told it to the, his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to you, to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Okay. Interesting here. The dream that Joseph has says that the, the sun and the moon, that's a reference to his dad and his mom, and then the stars, these brothers, would all bow down to him. Well, this was prophetic of when they were going to come to Egypt eventually, and he was going to be prime minister, and he was going to rule over them. God had given him that dream. And the thing I'd like to have you see is that it says that Jacob rebuked him. You see that? Now, it went out of focus for Jacob. And let me say to you, if you're anything like I am, when, when the roof falls in, when I get tested, it's very easy for me to go out of focus also. I think that's normal. That's, that's part of the walk. And when you really get under fire, you, you go out of focus, don't you? But then notice what it says. In my translation, it says, Jacob kept the saying in mind. So Jacob is saying to him, hmm, I wonder what God is doing when he got back in focus. I wonder. I wonder what that means. I don't understand, but I know the hand of God is here. What's going on? Interesting, along that same line, I did some cross-referencing over with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the angel, the wise men came to Jesus to see him, and so they told Mary all these things that the angel had said to them. And the scripture says that Mary pondered them in her heart. I bet she, and then again, when he was 12 and he was up at the temple and he was teaching... And uh, they were all that marveled at him on how he could teach. What he, how did he know all what he knew? And again, it says Mary pondered, treasured all these things in her heart. And so Mary was thinking, hmm, I don't know what God's doing, but God's in control. God's carrying out his purpose. I can't connect all the dots, but... 
I wonder what God's doing. So everything's okay. And so was with Jacob. He went out of focus because for his next to the youngest son to tell him he was going to rule over him, I mean, that was absolutely, you talk about countercultural in that society. That was a strong patriarchal society. For that to happen was just, you know. And yet, when jo- Jacob got it back in focus, it says he kept the saying in mind. I wonder what God's doing. Bifocal faith is able to see what is happening daily in present circumstances and yet sense a bigger picture of God's sovereign purpose in total control for our best interest. Let me ask you, rhetorically, how is your bifocal faith at 9-11. Was it the terrorists? Was it Satan? Or when you got it back in focus, did you treasure it in your heart and say, I wonder what God's doing? Or even right now, with the unrest, war, terrorism, the economy, are you pondering in your heart, I wonder what God's doing. I wonder where we are in the unrolling of this scroll of creation. These are exciting days we live in, aren't they? Bifocal faith has a sense of confidence and hope, irrespective of circumstances. Tested faith is bifocal. Let me stop there and see if you any comments, questions. All right, let's go on. The object of tested faith is the promises and the character of God. Let me say that again. The object of tested faith is the promises and the character of God. Let's look at the testimony of Joseph as he's dying. Now, you know, the last words of a dying man is probably going to tell you a lot about him, isn't it? It's going to tell you about where his hope is. I've never known a man that says, man, I hope I die today. You know? Death is, even though we know we've got a tremendous future, we we still resist, don't we? And so, let's take a glimpse at this guy, Joseph. As God has finished finished up with him, he's got him ready to go into eternity. Steve, why don't you read Genesis chapter 50, 
and read verses 22 to 26. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Mechar, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay. Notice what Joseph says to his sons and his brothers. In verse 24, he says, God will surely take care of you. In verse 25, he repeats himself again. God will surely take care of you. What's the object of his hope? And the character of God, isn't it? See, Joseph is saying, 